0: We are going to be in the Gospel of John this morning for the gospel reading. John chapter seventeen is 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 part of this whole in the book of John. John thirteen to seventeen are called Jesus' farewell discourse. Um, it seems like they are all happening, possibly right after. Jesus washes the disciples' feet in John 12, and it's like all of a sudden we get like four or five chapters of this extensive teaching. So we get the I am the way, the truth, and the life in John 14 and the promise of the Holy Spirit. In John 15, we get the stuff about I am the true vine. I mean, some of this stuff that like is near and dear to our hearts as Christians. And then John 17, 1 to 26 is one long extended prayer of Jesus. Um, we kind of get the idea that this might have been Uh, John's view of the shape of Jesus' prayer in in Gethsemane. And so this is how he begins that prayer. When Jesus finished saying these things, he looked up to heaven and said, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son so that the Son can glorify you. You gave him authority over everyone so that he could give eternal life to everyone you gave him. This is eternal life, to know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you sent. I have glorified you on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I shared with you before the world was created. Friends, this is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. O Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. For you, O Lord, are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. There was once a great architect, a phenomenal architect, world-renowned, and he had written the plans for his master building project that he would complete before he died, when suddenly he passed away and his plans all burnt to the ground in a house fire. His team of four, whom he had worked with, all had their notes on how the building was supposed to go, but none of them had the blueprints for that building. You can imagine that they would have some discrepancies along the way when trying to discuss together how this building was supposed to be designed, but they each wrote down how they viewed the project and then agreed to leave it alone. They no longer had the funding to carry the project through anymore. And let's say 100 years later, their project is picked up again. And there's been a groundswell of study and support for the legacy of this master architect. And there is funding. So people are trying to interpret the interpretations to figure out how to build this master building. They're looking at four different team members' interpretations and trying to figure out how they sync together to build this master building. In a way... This is what was happening when the creed was being formed. The best witness that the early church had to Jesus was the four Gospels. Yet none of the four Gospels explicitly tell us that Jesus is God. They make hints at that, and Jesus' work seems to display that. And these especially don't help us flesh out how Jesus is God. And that's what the creed then was seeking to do in its language and development. So today my focus as we talk about I believe in Jesus Christ the only son of God it's going to be on the person of Jesus Christ. The person who Jesus is. Really this is a focus on one sentence of the apostles creed I believe in Jesus Christ his only son our lord. This sentence gets elongated in the nicene creed. And we're going to focus today on why that sentence gets stretched out in the Nicene Creed. You can see it on probably the third page of your bulletin or the second page where it gets fleshed out. I'm wondering why do we need to say we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. This sounds like a mouthful, a redundant mouthful, And I imagine that whenever we say the Nicene Creed, this longer version, this is the sentence where we begin to glaze over, because we're not really quite sure what we're saying or why we're saying it. So here's the deal. In the year 300 and before it, there were quite a few debates going on in the early church about how Jesus relates to the Father. These debates center on how to understand who Jesus was while still maintaining a belief in one God. We see how the problems could develop, right? If, if, if the God of the Jews was, well, you know, I mean, the most important thing they said to each other was the Shema in Deuteronomy 6.4, which said, uh, Hero, Hero Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord, the Lord is one. That's, that's what they would say every single morning when they woke up. So then for Jesus to be God would seem to be saying, hey, you believe in two gods. How do we think about that? So there are a few ways and a few debates going on about how Jesus uh, operates in relation to the Father. One of those views is called adoptionism. And it just literally, I mean, adoption. Jesus was simply a man, this view held, but at his baptism, God adopted Jesus as his son uses the father announcing at Jesus' baptism, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased, right? So they would literally say, it was at that point that Jesus became the son of God. It was, he was adopted. The issue with this is that God the son then is not a divine being. How would this God save? How would he be any more than just a really good example or teacher? Another view, a second view that was being held at this time, is one that gets called modalism, all right? And I recognize, if, you're, if, 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 you, if you haven't dug deep into church history and theology, I'm saying some stuff, you're like, what are you talking about? So modalism, okay? It means that the Father and the Son are God, but they are not two different persons. In modalism, they would say that God is not eternally triune. God is not three in one, they would say the Trinity is just the way that we humans understand God. So in other words, when they saw Jesus walking among them on earth, they would say that we're seeing the Son side of God right now. The issue, however, is this. If Christ is the Father, if they're really the same, then the Father suffered on the cross and is also changeable. I would also add, what, what is happening then When Jesus prays to the Father, he prays to the Father all throughout the Gospels. Is is he just talking to himself? Like, is he just putting on an act for us? Like, how how can they indeed be the exact same person? A third view that began to take is called Arianism, and that's because there was a theologian and, and, and pastor around that time, and his name was Arius. He had a great following. And Arius said, the son is the first and the best of all of creation. He could be kind of a second god or a demigod. Arius, one of his famous lines was this, there was a time when the sun was not. And Arius would use a verse like the one from Colossians 1.18 that says the one who is firstborn from among the dead, and he would emphasize that firstborn till the cows come home. He would say, see, Jesus was, the, was, was born of God. The issue, and Luke Timothy Johnson, the scholar, writes this, he says, Arius claimed that the word was a creature, and therefore Jesus was divine only because God exalted him to divinity. Jesus was not already divine in his humanity. The Nicene theologians, who argued for what we have now as the Nicene Creed, maintained that salvation meant our sharing in God's life, and that only God can give us such a share in God's life, Only God can give us such a share in God's life. This is how some of these leaders understood salvation, that we are brought into the life of God, that God really brings us into God's very life together. And some of the early church leaders were concerned. They said only God could make that happen. Thus, Jesus had to be God. He could not be lesser than God. So here's where the early church ends up. In different areas where different leaders are in place, different regions, people were hearing, understanding who Jesus was in many different ways. The people promoting these ideas I just told you were not crazy or trying to do something underhanded. They were just trying to grapple with what it meant that Jesus is the Son of God. And if that means that Jesus is a lesser being than the Father. This is a lot of why the Creed was written in the first place. It is especially the reason for this Nicene Creed's long extended sentence, eternally begotten of the Father. God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. To say that the Son is begotten, not made, is a direct refutation of Arius' belief. We don't use the word begotten much, but in theological terms it was a way of saying that there never was a time when the Father wasn't beginning the Son. The bishop and theologian Athanasius, who wrote a whole work called Contra Arius, okay? So against Arius, he said it this way, light is begotten by the flame. In other words, the second there is a flame, there is light. How do you tell which one came first? You don't, right? It, that the second there is light, there's a flame. In other words, part and parcel of who God is, is is this relationship between the Father and the Son. As long as God has been God, he's had a son, Athanasius would say. Bishop Athanasius is the reason why our creed sounds the way it does. He was very concerned about what Arius was teaching. He is concerned because if Jesus is not God, then how are we to be saved? Luke Timothy Johnson states his concern like this, But it remains important to deny that the Son is a creature, for at stake is the reality of salvation. It is, God who, is it God who saves us in Jesus or not? The creed says yes. Arius said no, not exactly. In this passage from John 17 I read today, we hear this beautiful extended prayer of Jesus. What is obvious is that the Son and the Father are in a mutual relationship of glorifying one another. Hear once again these words of Jesus. I have glorified you on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I shared with you before the world was created. Clearly, the Son of God dwelt with God before coming to this earth. Arius would not have used this verse from John to prove his point, for it shows his point to be false. The Son is co eternal with the Father and was there before creation. The important thing that the Creed emphasizes in this point is that Jesus is both fully God and fully divine, fully human and fully divine. As God from God, light from light, the Son of God is always the Son of God. There never was a time when he was not. Colossians 1.17 states, He existed before all things, and all things are held together in him. Then two verses later we read, All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him. In Jesus, in other words, there is all of the fullness of God. So even if Jesus, in his earthly life, never stood up and said, hey, y'all, I'm God, just so you know, right? Which he didn't do, which we wish he did, because then we wouldn't have had to have 300 years of troubling work together to come up with the creed and everything like that, right? Even if he didn't say that, he clearly displayed it by his actions and words that so floored the crowds around him. They responded to him as if he was God and as if he was claiming he was God. Think about the raising of Lazarus from the dead, right? Think about how offended the Pharisees are at all turns when Jesus appears to be changing some of their law. Importantly, however, the creed also focuses on Jesus' full humanity. It says, For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven, was incarnate through the Virgin Mary, and became truly human. There is a messiness to how Jesus was born in a human way. Why would God subject God's very self to this? He could have come in another way, but he doesn't. Jesus is human. This is the name that the Son of God received as a human. When Jesus cries out to the Father at Gethsemane to take this cup from me, We know that he gets us. He understands what humanity is like. But part of what is difficult about about the creed is what happens next in the creed. We skip from Jesus' conception and birth straight through to his suffering and death. Why is that? Doesn't Jesus' life show us a lot about how we are called to live and about who God is? Here's the deal. The creed is saying that if you're going to tell the story of faith, you must include at bare minimum these parts. You have to tell about who Jesus is, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made of one being with the Father. You've got to tell about his incarnation, how for us and for our salvation he came down from heaven, was, became incarnate through the Virgin Mary and became truly human. We've got to talk about his suffering, death, resurrection, ascension, and second coming. The writers of the creed were not intending it to be as rich as the Gospels. They weren't assuming that a person would only use the creed and no longer read the Gospels or no longer read the New Testament. The creed isn't intended to be the only thing used in the life of faith, but it's to be used alongside the scriptures, the hymns of faith, and the prayers. It is presumed that the passage that we read from Colossians today was an early Christian hymn. In fact, if you look it up in any Bible, it's set aside like a poem. It seems like it was an early Christian hymn or creed. It seems like Paul's quoting a song that all Christians would have known at this time. The same goes for Philippians too. when Paul writes that equality with God wasn't something to be grasped, but Jesus took on the nature of a human and even a servant and humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. There were some early Christian creeds going on even as early as the 70s and 80s that were being proclaimed way before these Nicene creeds and things are developed. The writers of the creed used almost exclusively biblical language and images because they presumed that the people who would use this creed would be familiar with the stories of scripture and the songs of faith. The sermon today is not focusing so much on what Jesus did for us on the cross because that was not predominantly the focus of this section of the Creed what I want us to see is that the work of Jesus that work that we usually describe as salvation is made possible because of who Jesus is in other words if Jesus was not fully God then Jesus did not have the power to save and if Jesus was not fully human then Jesus' sacrifice for us is not really sacrifice at all. His life and witness lose some meaning without Jesus being human. What is interesting is that the creed does not try to settle exactly how Jesus' death saves us. There are many theories or metaphors out there that try to explain how we are reconciled with God. All of them seek to answer this question. How does Jesus save us from our sin? The gospel writers and the authors of the creed did not feel the need to explicitly describe this. But the authors of the creed do say that Christ came down for us and for our salvation. And I want you to hear this. Because of who Jesus is, we can be brought into right relationship with God. As Colossians proclaims, because all the fullness of God was pleased to live in him, and he reconciled all things to himself through him, whether things on earth or in the heavens, he brought peace through the blood of his cross. Friends, what we have in the creed is an incredible and valiant attempt to tell us who Jesus is and how this affects how God saves us. Without this clarification, the church could have gone in any number of ways and truly veered from what it means to be followers of Jesus Christ. In the best way, these early church leaders discerned and worked out what the plans of the architect were even after he was away. And now we live in that building, not literally, right? Talking about like the building uh, that God has made in the church, seeking to understand why it was built that way in the very first place, and worshiping the master architect as we discover that he has made room even for us. Thanks be to God. Amen.